0: Well, I think we've always wanted to have a world tour mechanic come on the podcast because it's a it's a job that there's just so many questions, so many responsibilities that is difficult to understand. So we sat down with Philip Tishma today, Yenzi. Um, how do you think that that conversation went with old Philip? I love the fact how he explained how many layers Uh, they're actually
1: at his job. It is not just putting a bike together. There's so many more different things going on. And I love to reveal the secret. How do they get the yellow bike to the yellow jersey within one night?
0: Yeah, I've known Philip for, for a while. And I did have to apologize because I got stung by a wasp today. That's the reason why I have my glasses on. So I'm relaxed. I'm chill. Look at me. I got my sunglasses on. So sit back relax and listen to this great episode we have today with philip tishma welcome philip tishma to bobby and jens hi
2: guys thank you for having me
0: philip um i need to apologize i don't normally wear my roca sunglasses inside but i got stung by a wasp today No, no 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 not the jumbo visma juggernaut team but like an actual wasp and um, my face is uh, seen better days. So I apologize. They are my prescription rocas, so I can actually get through the day. Just didn't want you to think that, you know, I've gone all like, you know, midlife crisis on you and had to wear sunglasses when we're, we're, we're chatting. But uh, listen, Philip, w- you know, we wanted to have a world tour mechanic on the show for a while. But during the episode with Mate Mahorik, uh, he mentioned you. So here we are. So the time is now. Um, This is about you, not Mate. But before we get started with all the technical questions, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of those, at least from me, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey, getting into the sport, and then where you are now.
2: Okay, so yeah, uh, it's been a long, let's say, cycling path for me. So I started, I don't know, some 30 years ago, being a cyclist myself, and I started in the same uh, grassroots club that Matei used to ride for. So, I was riding there till the first year of under 23 category. Then I stopped, wasn't good enough, didn't make the cut. And just opportunity presented itself for the winter that I could become a team mechanic. Mm Uh, so I took that role and I did uh, about a year and a half of mechanicing for my old team in Slovenia. And then somehow I got in touch with uh, another mechanic that uh, Slovenian mechanic in German team at the time in Gerolsteiner. So he hooked me up and I went uh, and worked with them half a year as a freelance. And I did make the cut that time. So I signed a contract for three years with them. Did three years there, did one year after that in Milram. And by zero time in Milram, I already signed a a contract for upcoming Team Sky. And then I spent nine years at Team Sky. And then just before Team Sky became Team Ineos, Bahrain signed with uh, McLaren and being half british half Bahraini, at that time i felt that was a right fit so i switched over to bahrain and since then i've been there and my role over this team so first three teams mechanic Mechaniking, in team sky up to head mechanic and then from team sky going over to bahrain took some additional roles apart from mechanic in itself, like looking for technical innovations and some operational aspects of the team. And yeah, just uh, keep challenging myself. So I'm definitely not bored, let's say like this.
1: So when <clears throat> when you took your first job as a mechanic at the age of about 23, is that correct?
2: No, I was uh, 19, I think.
1: 19? I yeah. Be honest with us. Could you then actually like, glue on a tyre and cha- change a chain? Or you had to everything learning by doing from there
2: on? Uh, I had uh, So, yeah, I, I was lucky enough. They need my old team in Slovenia. There was only clincher tyres at the time, no tubulars. But as soon as I came over to a German team, I had one of my mentors was a East German legend, Lange Lerch. So first task he gave oh. me.
1: I know him. He is he is a legend. He is a legend. Absolutely.
2: So first challenge was to put the tubular tire on. Uh, I I did okay, I think. But then the next challenge was uh, drinking beers with uh, Lange Lurch in the evening. And that proved to be a bigger challenge than putting the tubular tire on. So, yeah, for, for some reason, I was quite lucky. I. I across uh, Lange I came across uh, Ken Webdale that you for sure know, Bobby, uh, in Gerbersteiner, and they all took me as, as their protege, and then the Rajan that you met in Team Sky as well. So yeah, I, I was lucky, I had good people around me, they all helped me, and I still keep in touch with most of them.
0: That's kind of cool that you have that same story, because I think every professional cyclist also has to have that person that gets their foot in that door, that shows them the ropes, that's there to help them succeed rather than be happy when when they fail. So that's cool that that, that your network of mechanics have that same sort of support group and same sort of story. But at your level, at the world tour level, what makes... A good mechanic because you guys are on the road a lot working long hours what is what is it that you guys have that a normal mechanic needs to know or maybe doesn't want to know
2: yeah this question comes on uh, comes across a, a lot of times when we're picking new mechanics or we're trying to decide which ones to keep and which ones to let go so i kind of over the years, I split it down into three parts, and one is the mechanic it, itself. So most of, most of the time, the case is if the guy was there for a couple of years, he's good, good enough to stay on as a mechanic. Uh, so his, his level of mechanicing is good. But uh, as you said, we spend so many days away from, away from home that other aspects also come into account. And I, I would say another third would be interaction with, with other people. And then the last third would be how flexible they are, how many languages they speak. So there's social skills. So everything has to tie in to the group you work with. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. So it, it doesn't mean a, if mechanic gets sacked for, from a team, he's a bad mechanic. Most most likely is a good mechanic, but just did not fit in that in that uh, environment. So I keep saying to the guys, if somebody feels that they don't fit in this team anymore, they're free to leave on good terms, and I'll give uh, I'll give uh, a call to the next team they want to go. If they need any any yeah good word for them, that is that they're definitely not getting sacked for. For mechanicing but uh, maybe they just did not feel right in that team so it's quite complex and i'm still i'm still studying how to get better at this
0: um,
1: is it a true or an advantage for a mechanic to have a truck license every mechanic does have to have a truck license now in these modern days or is it enough if you have one or two of them with the truck license
2: Uh, So, yeah, over the years, when I joined uh, Ketersteiner, my ex-boss said, yeah, you have to have a track license and all the mechanics had it. At the time, maybe only one or two Swanniers had it and not many other people. But uh, then coming to Team Sky, I think almost every Swannier already had license. And then as cycling progressed and we got kitchen trucks and... Service trucks and camper vans. Basically, all all, all staff basically had to have the license, so we have the flexibility of switching and and uh, giving guys a rest when they need it because it's usually six days, one day off. So yeah, it, it's something that is obligatory. Yeah,
0: but a good mechanic doesn't only need to have the skills to be the mechanic or the the, the team camaraderie, um, aspect or the, the truck driver's license, I think a lot of it boils down to passion, passion for the sport, passion for the riders, passion for the job. Um, what motivates you to go above and beyond, uh, when, when things are, when things are tough or the road is long?
2: yeah uh, yeah, it's a good good one there Bobby so my wife will hate me for saying this but I just love the job so I, I love it so if I won a lottery I would still like to do this because it's my job and is is basically sometimes I wonder I, I think maybe this job is my life and family at some point comes almost second I, I can't say it too loud my wife is just over there but yeah it, it's You guys know, it's very similar to the riders. You spend so much time away, you spend more time with your roommate than you spend it with your wife. So, yeah, if you don't, if you just do it for money, you can't last very long.
1: I guess it is something similar to what the riders go through. You know, being away from home, uh, there's a few sacrifices there as well. Um, So once you down the road or at the road, what is a typical work day look like? Like what time you get up? What, what do you do first? What do you do last? What time you go to bed? Um, just for our listeners that they understand, because I believe it's long days for you, right? At some of the bigger races.
2: Yeah. So let's take a Grand Tour day for, for instance. So that there's two options. So you have the mechanics going to the race or mechanics going to the hotel. So at, at this point of, of, let's say, my career, I usually do the car so wake up in the morning have breakfast go down to the truck pump the bikes and load the bikes onto the cars and then I keep saying is it is long hours but there's a lot of times that you wait so you load the bikes, then you wait that all the riders come down go to the start unload the bikes check the tire pressures wait again (laughs) go to the start wait again that they start, so the riders start, wait that the stage finish, come at the stage finish, load the bikes onto the cars, off you go, another maybe an hour, two hours, uh, going back to hotel, then actually the mechanic thing starts. So if it's a normal day, if there's no crashes, it's about two hours to wipe down all the spare bikes. Uh, by the time we wipe down the spare bikes, the race bikes are washed, Tune the, tune the race bikes. Obviously, if it's a flat stage and a mountain stage, there's some changes. Uh, this day we, we use uh, WhatsApp, we communicate with riders. So after the stage, I would text the riders, uh, guys, what are you thinking for tomorrow's? Which gears, which wheels, which bike? So at the moment is aero bike and a climbing bike. So then they would decide we do that on the race bikes. We lock up the race bikes and then whatever they picked on the race bike in the morning we would fix the next morning we would fix the spare bikes to be the same before we load them onto the onto the cars. And it's very similar for about twenty days. Obviously there's difference if there's a time trial involved or if you're in the classics is a bit different, but let's say eighty percent of the time is like like I just said
0: geez geez so we, we've all seen the fancy trucks that you guys have now thank goodness for that because they have um air conditioning they have heaters you guys aren't working out in the, the the cold as much as you were but when you're bringing that mobile village from hotel to hotel what are some of the challenges for you guys because you guys you know the mechanics get there earlier than the riders because they're just doing the transfer. But what are some of those challenges that you have to deal with when you pull into a hotel that you've never been to before?
2: Yeah. So, so this is the, the other part that I said, let's say the second third of, of the whole thing. So when you come there is usually some teams that are already there. So you have to fight for your place. You need to agree with them where they're going to park, where you're going to park, um, it, it's works quite okay but sometimes you get some people that are not very cooperative uh, so you need you need to keep, keep your cool no so if you have uh, people that are very explosive uh yeah you might run into some problems and then also the the aspect that is very appreciated there is if you can speak multiple languages if you're in spain if you go to hotel if you need electricity water if you don't speak spanish uh, yeah if it's not a very high end hotel you you will struggle so we usually send the people that speak the language depending on the country where we are at we send them to hotel so they can communicate better with hotel and then yeah we we hope we don't run into a, a bigger team than we are so if you're if you're in the same hotel, like Kinos, for instance, you better get going very early in the morning. Otherwise, you have no parking. So yeah, it's knowing the knowing the atmosphere and uh, what it's required on a certain day, I guess.
1: So for our listeners, to for to explain it one more time, the mechanics go either to the race, right? In the race car, first car, and second car. or the other two or three mechanics jump in the truck and drive everything else to the next hotel, and then they need access to water and electricity, right? To run the the, the high-pressure cleaner and all that, right? Exactly,
2: yeah. And then, uh, usually these days, only one mechanic would go to hotel. There's four mechanics at the Grand Tour. So the fourth mechanic could either go to hotel or do the extra feeds that are very popular these days. So we sent three or four staff to hotel, which usually would be a chef, his uh, kitchen truck driver, one mechanic and one Swanee, maybe two Swannies, depending on the race. And there's some people that are going directly to the race. And there's some people that are doing extra feeds. If you're doing extra feed, you go down to the start, have a quick look, maybe have a coffee, and then you shoot off to maybe two or three points down the road where you hand out bottles, or maybe you don't and you stand there for two or three hours in the rain sometimes and nobody takes a bottle but it's the way it is i would like to say that yeah my job in the car is a lot easier though so i don't need to hand out so many bottles than like in the past but yeah it takes some sacrifice from some people to to achieve that
0: okay so we're talking about your your work at the race but how yeah. do you get a bike out of a box, dialed into the exact millimeter of that rider's position. How long does that take to A, build the bike, and then B, get that rider to be 100% happy with that bike?
2: So yeah, it's a long process. So usually the frames and the material are ordered around Tour de France time for next year. So by that time, not all the riders are signed, So you need to kind of guess a little bit as well, the numbers and the sizes of the frames. So you usually get the material like mid-November, end of November. Then all the mechanics gather what we call a bike build, which is usually in service course. So in our case, it's 12 mechanics. We would come in. You need about five days to build 120 bikes, because uh, bikes come frame one box, Shimano another box, uh, wheels and cockpits, another box. So it's not like your average uh, average bike shop where you get the bike that is about 90% built. You just need uh, a few, few screws and that's it. So we get everything like OEM. And then... If you really get into details, what you want to do is getting your leaders on on the best equipment. So everything being from from carbon, there's a small small tolerance in weight, in wheels, in frames. So uh, we usually get one or two younger guys or somebody somebody's kids to come in and open all the boxes and weigh all the frames. So weigh all the large size frames and then you take the the lightest five and you give them to your leader and then you do the same with medium bikes and then you do the same with with aero bike and all this so yeah it's long long process and it's a lot of unpacking and a lot of rubbish that you have to constantly basically drive dump and come back and it's, yeah, it's, it's getting better over the years. It used to be all plastic. Now it's mostly, mostly paper and cardboard, but yeah, it's, it's just time consuming. Let's say the actual bike build when it's ready. So the, the guys in service course, there's two guys working in service course, um, nine to, to five every day, and they would prepare boxes for each rider. So Jens, bike wire bike two bike three bike four on the on the floor with frames so when the bike build starts one mechanic would usually build all the bikes for one rider and then you kind of save time there and some people do each bike measure it what i like to do is build if i'm building three or four bikes build them up and then measure them uh, all at the same time so to avoid any any problems um but then yeah so from let's say we built four bikes two of these bikes would usually go to training camp that is held just after bike build all the riders would come in with the old training bike you measure that bike again transfer the the measurements to the new training bike you give him new training bike to take home after the camp you keep the other re- race bike or race bike number one, depending what you want to call it, you keep in the truck for the January training camp. The old old bikes, old training bikes would either go back to service course or be returned to in our case to Merida. So yeah in total with uh, the big team, so Bahrain victorious with CTF and with the junior team is about maybe 500 bikes. it's quite a lot.
1: So, how long does it take one mechanic to put one bike together out of all these single pieces? An hour, two hours roughly?
2: Uh, what we calculate when I do the, the workload, I calculate two and a half bikes per day. This is realistic. And then this is in about, let's say, in 11, 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Averages out like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Because we, if you're building, let's say, 10 bikes in four days Uh, for sure you have one that gives you problems with passing the cable or there's a handlebar that doesn't work so you're spending time looking for stuff so if everything goes well if if everything fits first try you need about one hour and a half to build one bike but it's very very rarely the case
0: Fairly, rarely the case. Absolutely. But now, mm-hmm. now getting into the fine-tuning of the rider's position, do you feel that a mechanic has to have a bit of a psychological um, aspect to it when when working with a rider? Because, you know, being having been one myself, I mean, riders go through some emotional things, up and downs. They want to change this. They want to change that. But do you feel sometimes when a rider comes to you and asks for like a minute, minor change that you kind of want to get into his head, his or her head and figure out, is this something that is just, they're just going to change back two days from now? Or is it something that they really need? Do you feel that you're kind of a coach to some of these riders when they come to ask to change their position?
2: Yeah, so I'm thinking... It kind of changes over the years. So if younger mechanics don't have the authority, so they would usually send the riders to their coach and then the coach would come down and speak to, to the mechanics and explain what they're trying to do. The older mechanics would ask the riders themselves. So, so what are you trying to achieve? What's the reason what you, why you're doing this? And what I always point out is if I change your race bike, are you sure you're going to be able to do the same at home? So, yeah, I think it's actually gotten better over the years. They, obviously, there's some riders that are more pick, picky than the others. But uh, thinking back when I started, either the jigs weren't that good or the material wasn't that consistent. But I think it's less playing than, let's say, 15 years ago. So once they're set, you always get one or two that they play for, for no reason. They have nothing to do maybe sometimes, but yeah, in general, it's gotten a lot better and and the mechanics maybe have a little bit more time and patience to do it. So that's the second thing.
1: Okay, now reveal us a secret here. Have you ever done or have you ever seen a mechanic that goes to a special rider that changes a lot? He goes, ah, I want to settle up for a millimeter or two. And then you say, yeah, yeah, I did it. But you didn't do it because you know in one hour, he's going to ask you to put it back down again. And you go, no, I have done this before. I tell you, I did change it. Have you ever done that? You don't have to really burn yourself. But have you ever seen this? You know what I talk about, right? We had riders like that. You want to lift it a millimeter, 30 minutes later, lower it. And you go, you know what? I just don't do anything. I just tell you I did it.
2: it, There was an occasion, yeah, that (laughs) one of my colleagues would walk around the truck and say, yeah, done. <laughs> the rider did ask for half a millimeter though. So, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah I know. I, I we, we had one or two cases like that as well. I can remember in my days. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I, I had big, big respect for, for Michel Riech because every time he was shit and sometimes somebody would ask him, you think it's the bike? He would always say, no, no. The bike is perfect. The legs and shit. That's it. Never play. Never play. So, Yeah. Obviously, different characters, different times, but yeah. Yeah, there was, there was certainly some challenging riders in the past that I worked with.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. I remember following uh, a rider before the Giro uh, team time trial one year, and um, it looks like he's sitting on like spikes on his saddle. He keeps moving, and then he comes back to the car and goes, hey, do you have a, uh, an Allen key in the car? I was like, uh, I think so. So I found an Allen key and I said, what, what exactly are you doing? And he said, I need to lower my, my saddle one millimeter. And I'm like, I ain't touching that bike to go one millimeter. So he took it, did it himself. And it's, we get rolling again. It gives me the big thumbs up. Like everything's great. And I'm just back there going one millimeter made that big of a change. But Hey, if it, if it, if it mentally, if it's one thing or another, like go for it. Right. Um, another question that I have being a fan of the sport of cycling, like many of our listeners and and viewers, are you guys using tubeless tires in the races these days?
2: Yeah. So I think, I think it was like three years ago, we were one of the first teams we didn't really publicly say that we are using it a lot because we thought, and I'm convinced it was advantage at that time and other people have not caught up. So in 2020, we were one of the first to go, let's say maybe 90% uh, tubeless. And I had to actually change the order for the tires like four or five times because I ordered 80% tubular and just a little bit of tubeless. And then uh, Matei did his test and he, he was the first one, to explain to other riders what's happening and he said yeah it feels shit it feels that the feeling is like you're on a tractor but it's faster so as soon as he said that everybody else that felt shit on it uh, okay maybe I give it another go so then the rider started using it and then the big change came when we said okay we're gonna do a big push for tubeless and I asked our wheel supplier Vision to supply us identical wheels for training as well. So we did all training bikes on tubeless. So there was no big change. When they came to the races, the feeling was the same. And then it really took off. And after that, then, pff, maybe I glued another five tubular tires.
0: So now that you've confirmed that you're using tubeless tires in the races, um, I've recently, I'm still on rim brakes, just to FYI, because I hate the sound of rubbing disc brakes. But for a, let's say, 28 millimeter tire on a flat to rolling normal road surface, what sort of tire pressure do, do you put in the, uh, the tubeless tires?
2: Obviously, it would depend if it's dry or wet, but it would go anywhere from like 4.3, 4.4 up to 5.7. So, depending on the weight of the riders, obviously. So, lighter riders would have maybe 4.3 in the front, 4.5 in the back. Uh, heaviest riders or some old-fashioned riders would go a little bit higher on the pressure. And uh, So, the, I think the highest that we have is 5.3 and 5.7. One German guy, see one mm-hmm. German guy.
1: Yeah, and I think he's even taller than me. Yeah, mm-hmm, yep. <laughs> He's a big man. Um, okay, I got another secret you're to have to reveal to our listeners. When a rider of your team takes a yellow jersey or a mountain jersey, the next day you have a bike in these colors. How did that happen? Is the bike already hidden in the truck? You got an overnight shipment from the bike supplier. How do you have a yellow or green or white bike with red dots on it the next day ready? How, how is that happening?
2: So so when yeah, when I place the order, I place my order with Merida obviously, on top of my order, Merida would add order for what they call a naked frame. So frame with no color. So they know who the leaders are, which size they are, and they would keep, let's say, two or three frames in each size naked. So let's say in, in each truck. Uh, no, they keep it in, in in Germany or in the past with Fausto, Pinarello, they would keep it in Italy. Especially Fausto was very, very... What's the word? Um, he didn't want to jinx it, so he would never paint in advance. Never. So always last moment. So let's say we take the yellow jersey today. Somebody has to do a long drive to whoever does the custom painting. Um, we, we do it in Italy usually, but we have used other people as well. Wait there till the frame is painted and then early morning, do another long drive. So uh, depending where we are, if we're in France, yeah, it's close by. If you're doing Tour of Spain and you're next to Portugal, it's a really long drive. And then in the past, when last last yellow bike that I've built was for, for G, I think we finished four o'clock in the morning painting uh building it and then we did it uh, i'm talking about the full yellow bike in the in between so what what we used used to do is as closer you got to paris the more yellow the bike would get No, so we would take it in steps so yeah there was a lot of bike building and and for for this reason, you have a couple of extra group sets on the truck, so you never know. You never know, so you have to be ready. But yeah, it's, it's long hours for somebody to drive, and it's long hours for somebody to build it up. But
0: that's the, okay. So that's for the leaders. The, you know, the guys that you are pretty sure are going to have a chance at that. But every now and then, there is a random guy that gets into a breakaway and then the next morning has the whole kit, has the whole bike, has, has everything. I mean, let's... So,
2: yeah, the, the jerseys, so usually the pants that match the jersey, the helmet, uh, all this is ready on, on the bus usually, is there in green, in yellow, in polka dot, uh, handlebar tapes, saddles, this we have in advance. Uh, but usually whoever gets into the break one of the leaders is usually the same size, so that's how you get the frame.
0: Let me throw yet. this at you then. Jumbo Visma, they had two leaders, co-leaders going into the Tour of Spain this year. And then our American boy, Sep Goose, yeah. takes the jersey. He's a much bigger yeah. size, I would think, than Primos and, and Jonas. Yeah. What what do you think was yeah. the was the quagmire, you know, confusion to get a bike to him that they didn't really expect to have to paint paint up that day
2: yeah uh, they did it a couple of days before before Madrid stage yeah so I think he it was a sure thing you know after, after the mountain stages the hard stages it was so they had a couple of days to get it to him in Madrid
1: we'll be back after this short break
0: now back to our chat with Philip.
1: Back in the days of Bobby and me, we didn't have disc brakes. Now everybody seemed to be on disc brakes, right? When the changing happened, did you and your mechanics went on on a training camp to train the, the wheel changes? Because it's all different. You have to have the power tool. You have to work really precisely to get you know the disc in between the brake pads. You guys did like a proper training t- camp for that? Or how did you adapt to the new technology?
2: Yeah, so the the first contact I had with disc brakes was still in Team Sky and we actually had one or two mechanics that in the past have done mountain biking. So they kind of led this process, but we only had a few bikes for guys to try. And then when I came over to Bahrain, there was a transition year where each guy would get two rim bikes and two disc bikes. And that winter, during the bike build, uh, we had shimano guys shimano europe come down and tell us and guide us through the process what are the things to look for and what are the most important things to align and stuff like that and how to bleed the brakes and how many bleeds we need to do how much oil should be in there and etc etc so yeah there was some effort but at the same time, there's an effort from manufacturers as well. So the first generation was okay. The second one was better. This is third generation now. It's is a lot better. So, yeah, they keep improving and our technique gets better. So, yeah.
1: But um, I also meant um, the, the, the wheel change in the race because it takes also more time but, now, right?
2: Yeah. In, initially, we just did the bike swap. So we, we, we were not too sure how it's going to work. And also the the alignment of the disc is not always the same. But then all the time we got the the right tools to do it. Uh, So the um, impact impact, uh, hammers from various companies were precise enough to always tighten the wheel in the same way. And usually what you would do in in the morning, you would check for your leader at least, which wheels, spare wheels don't rub on his bike. So you put those wheels in the car. So there's there's always small tolerances and yeah it's not as simple like back in the day with the rim brakes obviously but yeah it's getting better and the guys have trained how to change and we have shown the riders what not to do during the the wheel change don't squeeze the brake or get off the bike completely because yeah stuff like that we have we we did the effort there wasn't just natural so yeah.
0: Okay, now I got to ask because I am still using a rim brake bike because I just cannot stand, on the road at least, I cannot stand either myself or the people that I'm riding with that, that sound that just inevitably starts making noise from a disc brake bike. So I have that on my, my gravel bike, a disc brake on my gravel bike, on my mountain bike, but from a world tour mechanic to a Cat 6 gravel guy, how do you keep your brakes from rubbing? Your disc brakes from rubbing?
2: I think we, as a group of the mechanics, we we got caught in into overcomplicating this part as well. So initially, when when we started using it, we did everything and went, yeah, we need to do this and this and this. But I think as the as the material progressed, we come to this point where is simple is the best. So don't overcomplicate wipe the disc rotor spray the degrees uh, straight in, into the into the brake caliper so you get the dust out and that's it so day-to-day maintenance is this every so often you have to take the obviously the brake pads out and loop the pistons a bit so after that there's one or two days that is going to be a little bit rubbing and this and that but then if you come back and do the same process just a simple wipe of the disc rotor and a bit of spray into the brake caliper within two days you should be all right so and then let's say five days simple one day a little bit more harder and then maybe every month or so uh do the bleed racing conditions a bit different obviously some mountain stages uh, and long descents would require bleed more often but for your average Joe, for your average tourist rider i think once a month is plenty more than plenty to do the bleed in the past we, the guys did it every second day and was driving riders and the mechanics crazy but now i think we, we're a lot better and we got the recipe so bobby there's hope for you don't worry
0: everything that you just said went right over my head you know like wait it's kind yeah. of easier just to bring it to the bike shop and have them do it when it starts making noise. <laughs> Useless.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Hey, um, I have a question. Um, back in my
1: days, um, smallest gear I ever used was a 3828 up some climb into of Germany B called the Rettenbach Fener. Um, okay. In these days, like let's say the Giro Italia, for example, just the brutal TT up that climb. Did riders to your knowledge ever use a gear ratio one to one or even smaller?
2: Uh, I think the closest we came was one zero six. I think this year was the closest, and this was in Walter up the uh, the climbing Cantabria I can't remember the name. But uh, Angle? Yeah, yeah. So what,
1: what, what, what what's the numbers? Uh, 36 oh, in the front 30, or
2: thirty-six in the front. Uh, and then 34 in the back wow so this was it and we actually had to convince uh, one of our guys, he wanted to use 38 with 34 and we are like, man, I think this is too hard, just go 36, 34 and he was really happy afterwards he was like, well, good thing you guys told me, so yeah I remember, because we did a mistake back in the day with uh, with Brad and Froomey and st- on the same climb. So I was always poof, this climb is a bit different, no? So lighter, even too light is better than, than being too hard. So yeah, we got it right this time.
0: You know, when we see those massive crashes in the Tour de France where there's 50, 60, 70 guys going down, you know, of course, the first thing you do is look for the riders to make sure that everyone's okay. But then the thing that comes into my mind is, those are a lot of broken bikes, a lot of broken wheels, a lot of scuffed bar tape, et cetera. Um, how much is the retail value of just one of those bikes that go crashing, tumbling down, down the road when, when that unfortunate uh, episode occurs in a race? Like All in, the bikes, the wheels, the power meter. What, what do you think the, the, the average price is for a, a bike in the world tour this year?
2: Average price should be around 10, 11,000 euros or maybe $12,000. Okay. Average. I... So there's obviously some bikes that are more expensive, than some cheaper ones, but yeah, around there.
1: Hey, um, often when I go out or as a bike rider, I I used to go out, I had people kind of like smiling at me, go, hey, listen, my bike is so much lighter than yours. We do still have the UCI weight limit of 6.8 kilograms, right? Yes. Do uh... you think the UCI could drop it by 500 grams to 6.3 kilograms without having any problems with safety issues? I believe so, but you're the expert. Would you think that would be a logic step in the close future?
2: I think because thinking how the progression of the material went, it so tubeless tires, tubeless wheels, about 300 to 400 grams heavier compared to same wheel in tubular version. So I think at the moment keep it as it is. It is yeah, it's okay if I, if I was uh, Mick Rogers who control he's one of the guys at UCI friend of ours um I would actually put it up on 7 because in, in what happens in the race is uh there's things on the bike that are not part of the bike but the rule says if they are fixed on the bike in a way that you can't take it off the bike uh then this is included in the weight so even if your bike uh, let's say is legal to do the race 6.8 you still have uh, two or three transponders on the bike that uh, is easily over 100 grams and has nothing to do with the safety of the riders so i think that one thing this rule is wrong so the race organizer knows which transponders they gave you so they they should know. Okay, transponder number and uh, dimension data thingy on the, the saddle. The total weight is one hundred fifty grams. So the weight that they should be looking for is six point nine five. But unfortunately, it's not like that. And there's also other other things that are coming onto the bikes. We we saw this year uh, the wheels that have the air compressor on the hub. This is included in the weight. But this has nothing to do with the weight limit and the safety of the riders. So I would say for the sake of safety, keep it on 6.8 and exclude all the extras. Or include the extras but put the weight limit on 7. Because this is realistic what we can do. And there's another thing all your tourist riders... They use the material that wouldn't hold up in racing very long, usually. So, obviously, there is bikes that are six point five. Maybe they're okay. Maybe they're not. But there's some silly saddles sometimes. There's handlebars that wouldn't last one crash. Stuff like that. So, yeah, I I think the the rule is there to keep the the riders safe. So.
0: I want to kind of move the conversation over a little bit more to, to innovation, right? Like you have been a big part of that because when Mate Mohorich came on, he mentioned that it was kind of your idea to come up with that dropper seat post that he used when he won Milan San Remo. Um, how did that, number one, how did that project start? How does a mechanic innovator uh, like yourself come to a writer like Mate and say, hey, I think you should give this a try because he fully gave you credit for for this whole idea.
2: Yeah, uh, so I need to actually mention our late friend Nico Portal because uh, it started way before that. So he always said... You know, going back to the team, you said riders saddle one millimeter up, one millimeter down. So it was actually Nico Portal that said we should have a system on the bike to allow the riders to fix the the height of the saddle during riding, no? And then I was contemplating this idea for a very long time, no? So for a couple of years, and it's only when they banned the the top tube uh, top tube sitting that I was thinking to myself, maybe if we do a drop a seat post, we come to the same, same position, no, to do the downhill. And then I was thinking, okay, like who should we try it with? And then obviously coming from same town, like Matei know him for a long time. He, he has confidence in me and said, would you be willing to give this a try? He was like, why not? So and then it has occurred to me that he might crash so say mate just hold on a moment i ring the big boss give a, to give green light for this as well so he was like okay go out and test it and then initial test we use a dropper seat post that was 120 millimeters of drop to basically come down to the same position like sitting on the top tube but what Matej found out and saw very fast was that the angle at the hip was wrong so he was way too too much in the back he couldn't pedal but he 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 was also really good because he identified even like four or five centimeters is enough to descend a lot faster than he he would normally do and then we did another try with 50 millimeter and he was like that's it that's it. So, th- this is the bike. No, this is the bike. And then we took the next step. Okay, let, let's see which is the race that really could benefit from a crazy downhill. Obviously, Sanremo, he finished fifth in the past, so we knew he could be there. And then, and then we started thinking again, okay, is there something else that we can help him on this bike? And not a lot of people know that also disc brakes were upgraded on that bike so we use a bigger rotors on that bike to give him just that little bit of edge or the other guys so in the corners and um, not so much in the corners more like modulation to have a better feeling and more precise feeling on the brakes and he loved that as well we, we ran into some problems there because we had to improvise a little bit how to mount it because bikes are not made to 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 sit 180 and 160 rotors all the time so well, we made it work and then yeah we we got a green light from our sponsor and then was uh, yeah <laughs> everything else went to to the plan yeah and he won it and i still can't believe that it is very rarely you guys knew you you know from the past experience that you set the plan and there's maybe 20 points in the plan but it's maybe 18 of them happen the way you imagined and to happen differently. But this was 10 points and 10 points happened exactly like we predicted. So it was amazing. It was an amazing feeling. Really good.
1: So let's um, have another prediction. These air compressors within the wheels or the hub to adjust the tyre pressure. For a race like Paris-Roubaix, for example, or Flanders, do they have a future or not? Or we we are not there yet in terms of technology. Will we see Maté on something like that?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I had long discussions with another German guy, uh, Rolf Aldag, about this a couple of years back. Uh, I think there's a future. I don't necessarily think is what they have now on the market is the way to go forward uh because yeah tubeless tire let's say like this tubeless tires allow you to use a different kind of technology to modulate air pressure within the tire so I think we will see some different some different devices uh in the future that will accomplish the same goal so raising and lowering uh lowering pressures in the tire
0: okay Philip One last question, and this is going to this is going to go back a ways. When we were working together at Team Sky, I was out at the truck with yourself and Igor Turk, who I I think you're still working with to this day, both of which you guys are from Slovenia. We know that. Um, And we started talking and you said something. And I just didn't I need to confirm this, that you it's a true story and not that I just made it up in my head. But you actually said to me like you were famous in Slovenia back in nineteen ninety eight when you got third in the Tour de France because we all thought that your last name, Julik, had Slovenian roots. Do you remember yeah. Is this is this real or am I just over the years, I've kind of exaggerated that into, hey, I was I, I was king of Slovenia and maybe had a, you know, a, a part in motivating this new generation of cyclists that are coming through and being so dominant.
2: Because your last name could be Julic. And this is like a last name that is from these regions. And I, I think that maybe a TV commentator or somebody said it, I, I took it from. Somebody said, yeah, Bobby might be from Slovenia, Croatia, somewhere around here. So, I don't know where your ancestors come from, but they could very well come from this part. So, we obviously know that Sapkous is one-fourth Slovenian as well. So, yeah, you never know, Bobby. Yeah, You you never know.
1: (laughs) Philippe, it was an honor to have you on, and it was super interesting and exciting. Thanks a million for being our guest uh, tonight, and we learned a lot of things, huh, Bobby, didn't we? And hiking has moved on actually quite a lot since we retired. So thank you for that
2: update. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on your show. It was a pleasure.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Philip for being our guest. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo production in association with Shock Giraffe. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Payne. Remember to check out the video version of this podcast by heading to the Outside Watch YouTube channel. What's the setup hack that makes your ride feel perfect? Is it your matching bar tape, getting your saddle within a millimeter of the perfect height or fitting some brand new tech? Get in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, threads, and Facebook. Just head to at Bobby and Yen's and let us know.